This is a bonus episode of the Club and Country podcast, the podcast of record for Nashville SE coverage from two people who've covered the club longer than anyone in their respective disciplines and are now covering their fourth straight postseason appearance for a Nashville professional soccer club. I'm Nashville SE radio analyst Wes Bowling. And I am Tim Sullivan, the proprietor of ClubCountryUSA.com. Thanks to Moon Taxi for the music. When the chill hits, when the sun goes down at 4.30 freaking p.m., it's frustrating, <laughs> it's annoying, but it also is tantalizing, Tim, because it means it's playoff time in Tennessee. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's actually how I mark the clock, is that, oh, sundown at 4.30 p.m.? It's, it's playoff time. Okay, let's go. Yeah, first it was Cincinnati, then it was Charleston at Indy 11, then Miami, Toronto, Columbus, and now it is Orlando City coming to town Tuesday night. It'll be a national telecast. We'll have the radio call on ESPN 94.9. And Tim, this is the matchup that that I suggested would be the one Nashville would be happy to avoid, most happy to avoid. Here they are. Here comes Orlando. We mm. previewed it to death. And today we get to hear from a couple of people who have their own insight. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, I still am not the most worried about Orlando vis-a-vis some of the other options, but it's you know, as it approaches, you're like, okay, now I have this sense of dread. If it had been Cincinnati, there would have still been this sense of dread. But now that it's real, it does feel like, man, maybe Wes was right this whole time. Maybe it was Orlando that they wanted to avoid the most. And we're going to talk to two people who probably shared my perspective of who Nashville might most want <laughs> to avoid. The first is John Strong. He is the voice of Major League Soccer on Fox, probably the preeminent American soccer play-by-play broadcast voice stopped by to talk about this match, to talk about Major League Soccer, to chat about Orlando, the expansion build in Nashville, and the priority for him and his broadcast crew next year if they can make it happen. The one game they want to cover, here's a hint, it involves Nashville SC. And then we will chat with Evan Weston. He is the TV voice of Orlando City. He'll be moving to radio. He'll be coming up to Nissan Stadium Tuesday to call the match for the Lions. He had a strong opinion that... Not surprisingly, he's contrary to ours about the foul or non-foul in the box in Orlando. I don't even want to get started on what he said. Oh, my goodness. We don't go into it too much on the chat. You guys know how we feel about that. And uh, you'll hear how he feels, and you may not be surprised by his take uh, from the Orlando perspective. And then we'll we'll go through a final breakdown of the match. If you want to hear a little more in-depth preview, look back at our episode that we posted this past Tuesday. We'll chat about the keys to victory for Nashville SC. We'll go to the mailbag for one or two of your questions. And then we will have our picks for every match in the first round in the Eastern Conference. And again, if you want to hear about the West, listen to Tuesday's episode. Tim, a strong show, both literally and figuratively. Yeah, unfortunately, you made that pun, but uh, we were super excited to talk to John Strong. He was extremely gracious with his time. Um, Evan Weston also almost superseded because he had the specific information about Orlando City SC. This is going to be so exciting for our fans to hear uh, exactly what they're looking forward to in this game and and what maybe Orlando City fans are looking forward to. very different kind of priorities for the two fan bases and for the two teams. So to hear that perspective was really cool. This is the one playoff preview podcast you'll need to listen to. Well, in addition to last Tuesday's episode, of course, (laughs) and uh, let's get it started with MLS on Fox's John Strong. 
John Strong is the lead play-by-play voice for MLS on Fox. He began his MLS coverage in 2011 with the Portland Timbers, but his time with the club dates back to 2006. He moved to Fox full-time in 2015 and regularly calls matches for the U.S. men's and women's national teams. He was also Fox's lead commentator for the 2018 Men's World Cup. And of note to Nashville supporters, he was on the mic for the club's MLS debut against Atlanta last season. John, welcome, and thanks for joining us as the first Oregon Duck to join the show. Yeah, listen, I, I join uh, the illustrious Drake Hills uh, as uh, Oregon alums that have some sort of vague connection to Nashville SC. And and yeah, as you say, I've been doing it long enough that when I first started, I actually had hair on top of my head and then it just sort of migrated <laughs> down to my beard uh, by now. So it's that's that's a nice thing. That's longevity, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm walking that path as well, so we'll see, we'll see how that goes. Hey, the stress of calling this league either leads to the baldness or heart issues. I've got the latter. John, your voice is tied to many of MLS's uh, more memorable moments, especially over the last five years or so. But for me, at least as I listen to you call matches, it's your depth of knowledge that sets you apart. You know, I do play-by-play work for Nashville SC, and so listening to your work can become a bit of a crash course for me as, as a broadcaster for an expansion club about the history of this league. What inspired you to, first of all, want to, to be a part of this league and cover it, but then to also go to that next level and become really one of its chief historians? Well, well, first of all, Wes, I, I really appreciate you saying that. That actually means a lot to me because that's something I've been very deliberate about. And, and among all the different things that people could say about my work, that consistently over the years, it's been, hey, I, I learned something new when I hear you call a game, that's like, okay, that that's perfect. If we're doing that, the rest takes care of itself. I mean, I think, you know, as far as why I wanted to get involved, I fell in love with soccer as a kid. I've always been someone that, you know, in Portland, it was about, I called myself the street preacher of Portland soccer. I'd be on the radio at night, just sort of shouting to anyone who, if I could just get one person to come into church. And I knew that once I did that, they would stay. So that mentality is something I've always had. Um, I actually, it's, it's funny, as much as I've done mostly soccer in my career, um, I would say that classic Vin Scully baseball style has had a huge influence. I spent a summer with the, the, the Portland Beavers, they were called, AAA baseball, learning from a guy named Rich Burke, who was very much a Vin Scully acolyte. And, and so much of how I call a game comes from him and that storytelling aspect. And I think part of it as well, you know, as, yeah, I've been in, in this league since 2011. I've been doing it full-time nationally since 2013. There's a lot of data that supports the idea that the vast majority of MLS fans today have really only been around since 2017, maybe 2015. And some of that is just because it's a growing league. Some of it's because of the amount of expansion. Um, And so there's a lot of people that don't necessarily know the history, even recent things, even references to like 2012 and 2013 Mm -hmm. that a lot of fans just weren't around then. And so that notion that it's, it's not necessarily even history that I'm having to look up. It's my own sort of history and it's still relevant in such a way. And I think it's one of the things that has hurt the perception of MLS over time is that it doesn't have the history of the NFL or the NBA or the Premier League or whatever it is. And it's like, no, we actually do have some pretty good history. And it's kind of cool and it's wacky and it's crazy and it's it's significant. And we're into now a second generation, you could argue, of, of MLS fans, even that were around in 96. So, um, as I say, that's something I've always been very deliberate about. So. If that's something that, that's come through over the years, um, that that's really needed, and I, and I very much take that to heart. 
Well, and so much of that history has included a lot of dismal expansion entries into the league. <laughs> and, and we could point, if we wanted to be a little unkind, to a couple here recently in, in Cincinnati and Miami. Um, you came into the league with Portland in 2011, and you saw one of those expansion processes firsthand. But Timbers have been hailed as, as an expansion success story. I mean, the playoffs in their third year, uh, of course, have won two MLS Cups in the years that have followed. Nashville has seen some of that early success, too. As someone who lived through his own USL to MLS transition, how would you compare Nashville's rise to the ones that you witnessed firsthand in Portland? You know, it's an interesting point. It's something I've tried to tell people that expansion teams aren't supposed to be good. This whole notion of Atlanta and LAFC and even Nashville is sort of nonsense. When you look across MLS history, expansion teams are supposed to be bad and supposed to be bad for a while. Um, if anything, Chivas USA was actually for a time the shiny example of how an expansion mm-hmm. team could be good. And it was interesting how RSL was the first, you know, and, and they were part of that. Yes, Chicago technically 98 expansion. Yeah. They won MLS Cup. I, I still consider that original MLS. You really start the clock in 2005 and RSL was significant in how poor they were in 2005 when they came in and they win MLS Cup in 2009. They were very much the blueprint that Portland copied from and how they wanted to build. Timbers were, remember, in the shadow of Seattle, 09 blew the doors off. No one had ever been that good as an expansion team. No one ever had that many fans. Portland sort of paled in comparison, even though historically they were a lot better than people remember as an expansion team. They were awful their, their second year. Portland then in their fifth year wins MLS Cup. Minnesota, it's interesting that Portland plays Minnesota in the playoffs. Minnesota borrowed from that blueprint that Portland had created. So it was sort of building off one another. So Nashville, to, to bring it forward to your point, it's interesting because coming into 2020 gosh last year feels like a lot longer ago um it's not like anything's happened in the world in the last two years um this mentality that miami was going to be in atlanta and nashville was going to be in minnesota which was sort of a nonsense on the face of it b i actually i thought they were going to meet somewhat more in the middle i didn't think nashville was going to be that bad i didn't think miami was going to be that good i didn't anticipate the extent to which nashville would so far surpass miami Mm -hmm. but i think because they learn from those past expansion teams and they got a lot of things right in a very subtle way. And the way that they built their team, the way that they, you know, Gary Smith, I think is an example of someone who we were probably very unfair to. And it's interesting to look back as I've been prepping for Colorado of like, wow, what a ridiculous decision that was for the Rapids to get rid of him when they did, because it Mm -hmm. took them almost a decade to get right after that. Um, And then also, I think one of the cool things about Nashville, and I'll relate it to Atlanta, I can remember Atlanta coming into the league, and and I was absolutely someone who was like, this is a bad idea. Hmm. Soccer doesn't work (laughs) in the Southeast. Soccer doesn't work in big cities. Atlanta's a bad sports town. This this is, MLS has sort of gone a bridge too far. This this is when it's really going to sort of turn back on them, like the NHL, and they're going to have to retreat. And what we've learned in Atlanta and in Nashville and in Cincinnati is that Every city can be a soccer city, and there's a lot of reasons why, and it's a much longer conversation. But I think what Nashville has done without necessarily the sexiness that we attach to LAFC or Miami, but look at how good that they've been in their first two years. Look at how robust the fan base is. Look at how incredible the stadium's going to be. And and I've made a lot of noise at Fox that we got to call that first game in the new stadium next year. We have to. That Mm -hmm. needs to be number one on our priority for the schedule. Um, That's really cool. And I think it's important for MLS in a larger landscape that as much as MLS needs to be big in the big cities, it needs to cast a wide net. And places like Nashville, Tennessee are important for the overall health of of U.S. soccer. And there's an interesting idea because uh, 
you know, Atlanta won the title in their second year. That's pretty rare. Minnesota last year would have been the second quickest to MLS Cup, and they were minutes away in the Western Conference Final. Mm -hmm. There's still a significant opportunity here for Nashville to really, whether people realize it or appreciate it or not, really set a new standard for expansion success. Again, in, in sort of a quieter way than LAFC or Atlanta have done. And that that's pretty cool for an organization, I think, that that had low expectations externally that they've accomplished what they have so far, I think is really neat. And probably, yeah, ownership, Ian Air, um, Mike Jacobs and, and Gary Smith and everyone in the organization probably deserves a lot more credit than they've gotten for exactly mm-hmm. what they've been able to do. Now, in saying that, if they flame out in the first round with Orlando, that changes the conversation. But mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a great opportunity in front of them this year and the next couple of years. And, and again, having come to Nashville consistently over the years for national team games, as including MLS, um, that's become a destination place for us. That's become a place almost like we want to go, not just because Nashville is cool, but because calling soccer in Nashville is cool. And, and that's been a neat transformation to see over the years. So one of the things that is, is going to make Nashville either successful or unsuccessful against Orlando is the play of Hani Mukhtar. Uh, you revealed your MVP ballot and Hani Mukhtar was your choice over New England's Carlos Hill. What was it about Hani that made you say, okay, this is the guy who has been the most valuable player in this league so far in 2021? And truth be told, it was actually over Daniel Shallowy. I really wanted to vote for <laughs> Daniel Shallowy. Um, well, so and, even and farther over heel then. <laughs> yes. And I, and I say that just to explain, because mm-hmm. you have to go back to 2013, Mike McGee, mm-hmm. to find the last MLS MVP that was not an established professional somewhere else before coming to the league. Sort of, you know, he wasn't a homegrown player, but he was a homegrown MLS. I do think that's a really important thing for MLS is that homegrown players have to be perceived as stars in a big way. I think that's an important step for the league to take. And so, you know, the last couple of weeks of the season, Shallowy tailed off. He got banged up. And I genuinely, we called decision day. I came home. I got out my computer. We have this great statistics website, Paul Carr. People know that that name. It's his mm-hmm. group, True Media. And, and I was literally like, okay, I don't know who I'm going to vote for. And I started to go through different statistical things. And the one, as I tweeted out, that stood out to me was goals and assists when a team was either trailing or tied in games that they went on to either draw or win, basically goals and assists that changed the result mm-hmm. of a game. And that was where Hani Mukhtar stood out further than any other player. And that to me really sold it as the value to the team. And again, it's a most outstanding player, it's a most valuable player that becomes very subjective. But if you think about it in the context of Nashville, that last year they were so good defensively, but it was like, okay, they don't have an offense. Now, this year, better offensively, and so much of it has come through one guy, and one guy's goals and assists have been so significant. It's not always the case to actual results on the field that have lifted Mm -hmm. them high up the conference standings. That, to me, made it pretty easy in the end, and it makes it significant, to your point, Tim, Mm -hmm. to this game in the playoffs against Orlando and further. At the end of the day, teams that are successful in playoffs in any sport, certainly in MLS, you have to have a guy that you know, five minutes to go, we're down a goal. We need someone to make a play. Right. And, and, and goals by committee are great. And, you know, the, the whole being greater than some of the parts is great, but you still got to have a guy to be the guy. And that's what Hani Mukhtar is sort of turned into. And, and absolutely, if Nashville is going to make a run, it's going to be because he is performing at a very high level. So, so as I said, in the end, when I looked at those things, it was like, okay, that was actually a pretty easy vote. And I'm excited to see, if he can really hit that next level and, and do when the games matter most. 
with his emergence and, and what he's meant to the attack of this team, kind of adding it to the defense that isn't quite to last year's standard, but obviously last year's was an established elite defense. Do you think that makes Nashville a true contender for MLS Cup? Do you think they're one of the teams that should be considered a favorite? Yes, absolutely. And I, and I, I'll actually quote Bruce Arena. We did a, a New England game a couple of weeks ago. And we asked him, you know, who's impressed you? And it's tough this year because for a second straight year, the schedules have been so conference specific and for understandable reasons. And I like the change next year. It's going to open up to more interconference play. Yeah. The first team he said was Nashville. And he said, they're going to be really hard for us to deal with. They've been hard for us to deal with. So that's interesting to me, a guy that knows the league, but also the top dog in the league is sort of like, okay, Nashville's going to be a tough out for us. If we get to that point, because they're hard to beat, that's the starting point. If you're good defensively, if you're solid through the middle, I think, you know, Joe Willis, I actually voted for, for goalkeeper of the year last year. I think he's been tremendous. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you have all those pieces, you're not going to beat yourself. You're going to be in games. And so that to me, absolutely makes them one of the contenders. Again, it's MLS. It's unpredictable. It's one of the things I love most about this league is we come into games theoretically as the most informed human beings on the planet for a particular game. And I years ago gave up any expectations of what I thought was going to happen in any game we do <laughs> genuinely. Um, but they've got all the pieces and that's where I say there's a great opportunity here. And, you know, if I had, to, I, I think a, a Nashville, new England uh, matchup in the playoffs would be a heck of a lot of fun to watch. It would be a fantastic game. Well, the folks in Nashville would love to see that. Uh, one thing they did not love to see was Orlando on the other side of that first round bracket. Uh, this is a team that certainly has uh, so many of the pieces as well. And, and might be honestly, one of the most dynamic clubs in the league when they're clicking. They've got world-class talent up top. They've got, of course, DK, who who could end up being an elite global striker and not just MLS striker when all said and done. But despite that, at times, John, it just hasn't always clicked for Orlando this year. Where has it gone maybe just a bit wrong for them, in your opinion? Yeah, it's an interesting one. You know, we did, it was Orlando against New England, and Orlando came out, I think, built a two-goal lead, and ended up blowing it sort of when the starters came in for New England. And it's a confounding team, and it, it actually goes back to those Dallas teams of Oscar Pereja. Always very good and had a very high level, but had a hard time being good when it mattered most. And so, you know, 2016, Mauro Diaz blows his Achilles. What They were just shell-shocked, and they were done. But other years just had a hard time just hitting that next level. And I think Orlando, whether it's fair or not, is going to be judged by what happened to them last year and the way that they unraveled in the playoffs against New England and this perception that, there's issues of discipline or things like that. I think it's more just the the could, the can, the maybe. They've got all the pieces. They've got a, a goalkeeper in Pedro Galese who his resume doesn't pop out of the screen. His statistics don't pop off the page, but he's he's a game winner. It, it's it's hard to it, it's ethereal that concept, but he's he's a game winning type goalkeeper. Solid defensively. Um, you know, their fullbacks get very involved and effective in the attack. I think I saw that Juan has like been the fastest player in the league mm-hmm. um, this year, faster mm-hmm. even than Alfonso Davies and some of these these tracking things. Very solid, and they've needed to be deep in the center of the park because they've had a ton of injuries. The fact that Orlando are as high as they are in the standings is actually pretty incredible when you look at how many injuries they've dealt with this year. And then up front, Chris Mueller, sensational player. Clearly, that's been a mess since yeah. since the contract talks broke down in the summer. Kinda we had a great out, chat with yeah. him about it. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I would disagree with that point. I think in the sense that it's not all on him. And in speaking, I think this has been one of those things where there's no, no one's coming out of this looking great. No one's done this the way that they could have done. And it's a shame because he's he's one of our favorites, and I wish him success. But it's been a weird dynamic. Nani, we know what he can do. Um, 
does he do it consistently as well this year as in past years he's been banged up? Daryl DK, similarly, we know what he can do. It's Can he do it on the day? Mauricio Pereira is a funny one to me because he's a very important player for them. He does so many things, and yet he's not goals and assists. It doesn't, doesn't pop off the page. And so at the end of the day, it's great to say all these other things, but like you need that end product. That tends to denote the players that get it done. So, yes, th- this will be an interesting one because I think those are fair questions about Orlando and their ability to be their consistent best over 90 minutes, whereas Nashville have more reliably been able to hit a consistent level over 90 minutes. But in saying that, this would be my advice for Nashville. Don't let Orlando hang around. Hmm. Don't let him stay one goal away because there are multiple players on that field that can make a play in one second. And that undoes all the work that you've done. So how Nashville manages that, I mean, I'm going to be, it's a double header for us on FS1. So I'll be watching that one intently before we call Seattle RSL. And that'll be my thing is like, if, you know, Nashville just don't don't give them that opportunity to make a play because they have, I would say, Orlando have more special players than Nashville do on the attacking end to be able to make a special play, if that makes sense. We're about 15 minutes through the conversation. 15 minutes gone. 15 minutes to go. <laughs> Couldn't resist the opportunity. And I, w- I would love to let that lead into a transition to talk about your broadcast style. Uh, you developed a unique tone, a recognizable voice. And, and in an American soccer landscape that, that really often values foreign voices coming in to, quote, lend credibility um, to the sport. How do you view your role as a representative of and a pioneer for American soccer voices to earn opportunities to to call the biggest matches for and in America? There's a lot there. And and this is one of those things, if we had cold mugs of beer in front of us instead of microphones, that's an easier conversation. <laughs> Not sure. because I'm going to get the flamethrower out, mm-hmm. but just because there are certain elements of this that that just can come off the wrong way. And that's not how I really feel necessarily. I did once the, the younger me was much more angry and resentful of different things. I, I've come around the other side of it and I've been lucky that I've gotten opportunities. I think it's a starting point. You know, I got the opportunity to NBC because NBC in 2012 essentially said we want someone new and young and American and Fox. Similarly, the mentality and it was ironically enough, our boss, John T. Whitehead was English. He had built Sky Sports. He had built be in sports in Qatar. And his whole mentality was we need to be an American voice for the world's game. It was the English guy wanting deliberately an American voice and other executives at Fox. They could have gone out and thrown money at Ian Dark. They could have gone out and thrown money at whoever. Um, they gave me the opportunity. And, and so I'm thankful for those things. It's nothing to do just specifically with me. One of the other things I would say, I've been heavily influenced by Spanish language style. I've been heavily influenced by the English style, just as I've been heavily influenced by American sportscasters. This is the only job I've ever wanted to have since I was young enough to even know what that means. And I've often described it as a triangle. If you think of as avatars, Andres Cantor at one point of the triangle, Martin Tyler, at one point of the triangle, Al Michaels at one point of the triangle. And I'm like a little ball bouncing around in that triangle in any given moment. Um, and part of it is because there's no blueprint. When I was coming mm-hmm. into this, there's like how, you know, how do you call a football game? Well, that's there's a blueprint for that. How do you call a baseball game? There's a blueprint for that. How do you call soccer on the radio when I was starting? I really never even heard soccer on the radio when Same. I was first starting. Um, so how the heck do you figure out? And so that's been my whole thing. And there are years I, I go back like 2014 at NBC. I'm I'm doing too much of a Martin Tyler impersonation. 
And in 2017 at Fox, I'm doing too much of an Andres Cantor impersonation. Part of it was me figuring out what my voice is and where I fit in these influences. And part of it was also me stopping caring what other people think, if that makes sense. Like that was a very deliberate thing in the spring of 2018 is I cut myself off from, I haven't looked at any Twitter mention or anything anyone's written or said about me genuinely since the spring of 2018. Now we get market research back and I've got people around me that I trust that give me feedback and I'm my own harshest critic and Stu uh, drives him nuts. And my wife, it drives her nuts that game will end i'm like oh that was terrible i didn't do this didn't do that and they were just like all right just stop talking <laughs> but that's i think is important mm. and just trying to take these disparate influences because mm -hmm. again it so here's another example and, and wes i know you'll appreciate this since, since you know as you said you've been talking about these things um this the point in the triangle kind of thing rune arledge if you guys know who rune arledge is mm -hmm. he's the the mm -hmm. godfather of created the template of what american sports broadcasting is and one of his quotes is, it's a truism of sports broadcasting that when something important happens, say nothing. Hmm. We call that laying out. And the Richard Deitches of the world will write, you know, Joe Buck laid out for two minutes after this, or Doc Emmerich laid out for two minutes after, you know, and the whole point is be silent when something has happened. It's great because there's nothing you're going to say. It's any better than the pictures and the sounds of the crowd. Well, that is the diametric opposite of how mm -hmm. soccer is called in Spanish. Mm, there yeah. is no saying nothing. There is saying everything in that moment. Even if you listen to English announcers, if you really pay attention, the layout comes when the ball's in play. Any mm -hmm. English announcer, again, you're generalizing. When the goal is scored, they'll actually talk all the way through the whole goal celebration. And then the replay will come and they'll sort of wrap it up and hand it off. My specific mandate from my bosses is when something, the goal goes in, shut up as fast as possible. <laughs> so that's part of where this interesting perception comes from of what is authentic, what's the right way to do it, because they're different schools of broadcasting. And so trying to just, A, thread a needle in there, and B, not really care what anyone else thinks of it, I think has been really important. And listen, I'm much better now than I was five years ago. I'm going to be way better, hopefully. And five years from now, that's just part of it. Um, but it is something that without trying to make it about myself, mm -hmm. I do take very, very seriously. And I think it's kind of cool that I've been afforded this opportunity to, to help be a, a sort of a co-author of whatever exactly the American style of calling yeah. soccer is going to end up being that, that that's kind of a neat thing. Yeah. How much do you see that as kind of a, a parallel with American soccer being a blend of Latin influences, being a blend of, of English and, and European influences and, and kind of your play call style reflecting the almost the American melting pot that, that soccer is representative of? 100 percent. That's American. Mm -hmm. it's, it's America at its best. It's American soccer at its best when we're able to take these wonderful, amazing influences and, and sort of create something from them. It's not about picking one over the other. It's not about prejudging one is better than the other. And, and, you know, even to the extent that I, you know, the English way of everything in soccer is overrepresented in the U.S. for very understandable reasons. And it was Copa America 2016 that I really in, in researching got understood my goodness like that actually is a minority in the world like if you listen to a game in Spanish listen to a game in French listen to a game in Arabic listen to a game in Korean you know and and going through the World Cup process understanding that, that there's a whole gigantic world and so we have just as much right in this country to sort of create whatever our own style will be while taking these influences and and absolutely that's something that 
you know, when I ex- sort of extend out the the vowel sound at the end of a name, Valeri kind of a thing, that's that's I I can't do the goal call, but that's my homage to that. Um, trying to find other ways to just again take these influences and create my own thing out of it, I think is cool. And that's where again I I love the idea of hopefully getting to do this for a few more decades and be a part of whatever the end product's gonna be of of American soccer culture, broadcasting, all those sorts of things. And so much of that melting pot can be seen literally in the seats and, and more so than ever of MLS matches. Where's your favorite place to call an MLS match? And, oh, gosh. Uh, and maybe do we exclude Portland? I mean, there's any of them right so. now because we do so much remote <laughs> broadcasting. I'm just happy when they let oh, me out sure. of the house. Listen, Portland's always going to be a special place for me. It will always. Th- so I almost have to remove it to a certain mm-hmm, extent. Sure. LAFC is amazing. L- LAFC is something, man. And and my wife and son came to the El Trafico at the end of August and they were both like, Whoa, that was, that was pretty cool. Atlanta's really neat. Atlanta is a great example of creating a voice and a sound that is representative of a city in a really special way. So Atlanta has been a, a very fun place for us to go. Um, I, you know, it's, it's tough for me to say there's so many good options right now mm-hmm. just for that reason. You know, Cincinnati, we were blown away by. As I said, Nashville has been amazing. Um, Austin, we did an M, uh, it was a gold cup. It wasn't an MLS game. What's happening in Austin is really cool. So that to me is a special thing that we would have multiple mm-hmm. candidates for like, what's the what's the best place to go and call the game? I think it's really special. And the fact that it sounds, that an LAFC game sounds very different from a Portland game, sounds very different from an Atlanta game. I think that's important too, to your point that, let's let's have a lot of variety and a lot of cultural mix here of all these different ways that things can sound to shift that question then a little bit to make it more nashville centric as nashville's looking to create an atmosphere um at its home stadium next year is there a, a club you think that, that they should emulate i know they need to make it their own right it needs to be true to nashville right? well so but- no i'll, I'll specifically no like 1000 percent no and i think i think the the really cool opportunity for nashville and i remember saying this in cincinnati you can read about the history of the Reds, the Bengals. You can write the history of, of SC Cincinnati. And that's the same thing with Nashville. And I get, you know, the ways that there's there's an interest in emulating. So Ian Ayer clearly is going to bring a lot of Liverpool influence. Right. And there was a deliberate attempt with Judah and the Lion to sort of create an anthem that they would sing that's similar to You'll Never Walk Alone. But it's the and that's great. I would also not caution, but I would suggest as much as Nashville has a very specific place and role and image in American pop culture. And that was what makes Nashville really cool. I would also, and I've gotten enough of a sense in my visits there. That's not every single thing in Nashville. So there's a way you can maybe steer too hard mm-hmm. into Nashville honky tonk and you're excluding other elements of what makes Nashville and Tennessee cool and different and unique. But I, the larger point is exactly that. Can you, and I think when MLS is at its best, if you were to flip on a game, you can tell within about 20 seconds where this game is being played. It just, it looks and it sounds and it feels different. So how can Nashville find those things and not have it be the same chance you hear other places, not have it be the same songs, those sorts of things. Create it uniquely Nashville, but also again, Nashville in a broader sense than just the one popular image those of us that aren't from there have of the city. Cool and awesome and great as that is. Thanks for taking in more of the city than many do when they come. Broadway is. <laughs> and it's it. funny. And, and that's that's part you, of it. I mean, you know, you were mentioning like city specific stuff. And the first thing that popped into my mind is like Kurdish and, and stuff like this country was not even the first thing that, that came to mind <laughs> at all. So it's, it's very funny that you um, made that very clear. 
John, tell us if you disagree. We, I think, would both tend to agree the future of MLS is, has never been brighter. Oh, yes. No, I'm sorry. I was waiting. I didn't know there was more. <laughs> no, there, there is um, a follow-up. Here's, I want to make sure thing. you agree with that, that premise first. Yes, yes, undoubtedly. If I didn't think that, I would be asking to get on one of the NFL crews. So, yes, I would agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> so, in your opinion, how can MLS harness that momentum in a sustainable way? And we'll bring up a couple of, of, of menu items here. And interested in your opinion as to, uh, you know, how effective each would be in growing that momentum and continuing the positive string that, that exists now. Uh, the first is expansion. I mean, do you think this needs to be a 40-club league? at some point is expansion a key to harnessing that momentum or should the league be a bit more judicious in awarding select spots and and maybe making it about quality rather than quantity i think the league does need to be judicious i disagree with the notion that it needs to worry about getting too big a casting a wide net is i think very important particularly for a league that struggles to have a truly national fan base and is more knitted together individual local fan bases i think also our frame of reference, some, certainly that European leagues are capped at 20 teams, but there's a reason that's a competitive reason. When you have playoffs, you can have 80 MLS teams. It doesn't matter. Also, I, sometimes I think because of the hockey influence, there's a fear of diluting the talent. I remember hearing that even in 2017. League is overexpanded. Quality of play is going to go down. I don't think anybody would say the quality of play has gone down right. in MLS the last four years. Soccer is, if not immune, heavily resistant to a dilution of the talent pool because the talent pool is global as the league has gotten bigger the league has gotten better but i would agree that it's i don't think just because someone shows up and they're going to write you a 400 million dollar check you just boom because i think you've seen situations like new york city charlotte's going to be an interesting one the stadium is such a key important part of things and Mm -hmm. and if you don't get the stadium right it's i think again new york city is a cautionary tale of the Mm -hmm. dangers that can come with that what about liberalization of spending? Maybe not even to the level of a, of a league MX, but but opening up the salary cap, opening up DP slots. Is that something that will need to happen as we look at the next, next CBA and beyond? It's something I feel strongly about as, as an economics minor at the University of Oregon who also stayed at a Hall Lane Express last night. I'm a big believer <laughs> in removing centralized controls to the economy. And and I think that is, I understand the the controlling costs, having a salary cap, but removing, and we're slowly seeing that process play out, removing all of the different, just go spend your money and, and pick yeah. who you want to pick. So I'm a big believer in that. I think that is slowly starting to happen. We're not going to see a huge increase in the salary cap, but the removal of the restrictions and the TAMs and the GAMs, and no, you can't spend that money on that type of player. You have to spend this money on that type of player from the league office. That is, is liberalizing itself as we see. I think that'll continue, which is a good thing. And then finally, should the trend continue of, of taking top talent, developing it and selling it on as a primary means of growing the, the sport and, and the league here versus bringing in well-known talent, which can have significant marketing benefits, but also can have limiting you know, elements as well when, you, when you're seen as a retirement league. The pendulum's shifting. Should it continue to shift toward that development league or is there a point at which it needs to find some balance? I don't think it's one or the other. The, the mm-hmm. Premier League isn't one or the other. The Premier League is both right. of those things. I think that's been a difficult, you know, I, I go, I got Arthur Blank, right? Why Why am I getting rid of Miguel Almiron? I wouldn't get rid of Matt Ryan. Why would I sell my best player? But that's, that's kind of what you do in soccer. It's a much more transactional sport um, globally than American sports are. So I think both of those things need to happen. And I get the perception that it's a if just young guys are trying to bolt to Europe as fast as they can for the benefit of the national team, where does that leave MLS? I get that. And, and it is a slippery slope. We need to find the right balance. But 
you also don't serve yourself by creating a walled garden and no one can leave. And I, I also disagree that it's not good to have any, you know, at least some well-known players, if they want to come and be a part of it, that's great. And that's fine. And, and I think as much as the Stephen Gerrards and some of the others have provided very little, you can also mm-hmm. argue that a lot of foreign players, Robbie Keane and Thierry Henry and foreign managers now like Tata Martino and Patrick Vieira have provided a lot to the league. So it's all of those things. It's everything. And, and I would say the last ingredient is time. NFL is a hundred years old. The NBA wasn't in, in its forties until it really ever gained any significant traction. MLS is 25. And by the way, it's competing against 30 other soccer leagues for the popular attention. So some of it is also just give this thing a few more decades and it will continue to grow because that's that. But it takes that amount of time for something to really get to where it needs to be. Well, John, you've been the voice of so much of that growth. Thank you for taking the time, being very generous with your time uh, to talk with us today. And I know a lot of Nashville SC supporters who hope they'll be hearing your voice on the mic for Nashville before this season's done, because it means more playoff matches for the boys in gold. Really appreciate you taking the time today. Thank you so much, guys. Enjoyed the chat. Thank you. Yep. Thanks for coming on. Tim, we've enjoyed John's commentary for so long, but I think you know he gave us a glimpse at what I think really truthfully sets him apart and what some fans deeply appreciate and others may not quite know if they've just heard a few matches, which is John's encyclopedic knowledge of this mm-hmm. league and the perspective that lends to the matches that he calls today. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you were going to kind of put uh, play-by-play people into buckets. Uh, John is definitely the person who fits into the bucket that club and country is, is, is so much aligned with in that his, his preparation, his, like you said, encyclopedic knowledge is just exactly kind of our speed. And it was so great to hear how he got to that point and to kind of hear him prove it in terms of, yeah. in terms of what he's looking forward to this weekend. And I'd be eager to sit down and grab one of those cold beers with him and, and talk a little more about broadcast dynamics in the United States, because I think what we should achieve in this country is not all English broadcasters, not all Spanish mm-hmm. style, not all American broadcasters. We need right. that blend. And we have those even in our own market, like Tony Husband, who do such an exceptional job, who have come over and embraced and appreciated the culture and tried to marry his style with what's important here. But I think the idea that you need to be from another country to be a legitimate voice, and Tony himself has, has said this, mm-hmm. you know, that, that he appreciates what he's learned from voices here. And I was glad that John stepped up. I'm glad he's continued to step up in the industry and be that strong voice for American soccer broadcasters and really you know, yeah. pave the way. And as he said, co-author that voice and tone. Yeah, and I, it's pretty interesting because you and I obviously are are very good friends with John Freeman, the former radio voice of Nashville SC. Peace be upon him. May his memory continue to be a blessing. But when he first brought up to me that he thought John Strong took the kind of the Mexican Latin American style and brought it to an English language American accent sort of uh, venue, I was kind of like, okay, I don't really see what you're talking about. But then when John said specifically. That is exactly how I see myself. I have taken the Latin American thing. I've taken the English thing, but the Latin American thing is is probably what he is most uh, kind of comparable to. Just he sounds like an American guy. It was so interesting to hear, and it was really cool to hear that he appreciates and understands that American soccer is not uh, something that we're porting English soccer onto. It is its own thing. That is that is this melting pot ideal that uh, the United States itself should be as well. Yeah, he provides the perfect blend of, of, you know, bringing in context when it's necessary, which is often, 
uh, for new fans, but also letting the atmosphere breathe. And it's so hard mm-hmm. to achieve that balance. And, and he talks a lot about laying out after goals, but yeah. you, know, you have to you have to weave that thread, thread the needle. He said through that goal mm-hmm. call. I loved that comment. And, you know, honestly, if, if we had our own, you know, episode of, of Lame Stream, just the two of us talking soccer commentary, we could have gone with him for, for two hours. Um, it was it was really, really rich and appreciate his perspective on that, but also, of course, on Nashville and Orlando. And speaking of that perspective, let's go to Orlando now and chat with Evan Weston. He's the voice of Orlando City on TV. He will be calling the game for radio in Nashville, making the trip up. Have to either buy him a drink or maybe just pour him a tea in the press box and and say hello and thank him for his time as he's going to bring strong perspectives. He is a full-time employee of Orlando City SC and, uh, and brings a lot of insight from the men in purple and gold. Let's hear our chat with Evan Weston. Evan Weston is the lead play-by-play announcer for Orlando City SC on Fox 35 Plus in Orlando. He's been on the air for the club since 2017, starting in a radio capacity before moving to TV for the last three years. Evan's a graduate of Syracuse University's famed Newhouse School of Journalism and has covered everything from Major League Soccer to Minor League Baseball to Lacrosse. Evan, long live the Auburn Double Days, uh, and welcome to Club and Country. Yeah, long live the double days. Uh, they got caught in the purge of minor league baseball, which was uh, very sad for me to see. Um, but uh, nevertheless, here we are in Major League Soccer and so, so excited to talk some playoffs. Yeah, the good old New York Penn League, just some of the best baseball <laughs> you're going to find. Uh, so let's start with a question, Evan, that everyone in MLS was weighing in on a couple weeks ago. We've given our opinions on the show. We're not going to turn this into a debate. We'll let you take the last word from our Orlando perspective. Did Daryl DK foul Alistair Johnston in the box? Uh, no, of course not. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 no. Um, I, I, and it's funny because I had sort of thought, especially after the Montreal match where Orlando City played really well and won the game and made it to the playoffs kind of on their own terms, uh, that they would move on from it. Mm-hmm. And we were at the press conference yesterday, um, and I asked a, a fairly anodyne question about you know, just taking the challenge on the road and wanted to see what his perspective is on that because Orlando played their playoff games at home last year. Mm-hmm. And Oscar Pereja, the head coach, kind of unprompted mentioned that he was still very, very upset about that and that he especially was upset with Gary Smith's reaction to it huh. afterwards and that he had a major problem with that. So I expect that this match coming up on Tuesday – is going to have a little bit more of an edge to it than just a playoff game, which would already be a fairly high stakes emotional affair. Um, I, I think Orlando's coming with a point to prove uh, that they beat this team last time fair and square and that it was taken away from them and that they had a chance. I mean, if you look at it, they'd be hosting in this round mm-hmm. uh, if that result had gone the other way. So it's uh, it's something that they're very frustrated by. Uh, I know that every, everyone here that's, perhaps uh, almost probably the last time they'll get to see their team this year mm-hmm. in person. Um, and, and uh, you know, it was, it was a real sore spot uh, and it's, it, it's, it's not gone away. It still remained a big topic of conversation. Um, I, again, no, I think, it, I think it's probably <laughs> a no call. You could even have called a penalty on Johnston. Uh, you can't just put your leg in some, in front of someone that's playing the ball. That's not allowed. Um, so no, obviously it was not a foul. Um, but uh Regardless, uh, I think maybe it all works out and fate has brought us here to where these two teams are going to get a chance to settle it on the field, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah, they've had a rivalry building 
obviously uh, the split last year, one, one, and one. And this year, every single one of them a draw. Uh, maybe shouldn't have been that way in, in the eyes well, of some. Fair, in the last one, you know, the previous match in September, Nashville was comfortably the better team mm-hmm. for 75 minutes. And then Orlando comes yeah. back, they get the penalty. Uh, and then the the goal at the death in, in stoppage time to kind of steal mm-hmm. one there. So it's been back and forth and, and roller coaster like. So has Orlando kind of been evolving from an emotional standpoint to now seeing Nashville as maybe a true rival, maybe certainly not Atlanta, but jumping up kind of that pecking order of rivalries a little bit? Well, yeah, I mean, you, you have Atlanta and you have Miami, um, which were two teams that, uh, you know, there's just a lot of banter mm-hmm. uh, back and forth. And I mean, the, the the fans of those teams are fans of rival teams and lots of other sports, mm-hmm. which is not really true for, for Nashville and Orlando. So the natural connection isn't there. I'd also probably put NYCFC up there. Uh, those teams have played. They came into the league together. They've played 20 times. They've played in some bonkers games against each other, including the playoff game last year that was so ridiculous and had the Rodrigo Schlegel uh, penalty save in the shootout. But I even go back to last year when Orlando City was undefeated at home last season, came in on decision day, were leading the game very late mm-hmm. on only for Nashville to score two goals, win that game and ruin Orlando City's undefeated home season. They would have been able to say that. Uh, had they just even if they just hung on for a draw, but uh, Nashville scoring twice in the last five minutes in that game, I know that left a sour taste for them. They were not happy about that, um, and and I, I think it's nice you know because the two teams have kind of you know it's had that organic feel where they've both right. kind of one up the other. You had uh, the game this year in September where Orlando City came back at the end. You had uh, Nashville with a comeback uh, draw at home the year before, so. It's 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 been a, a fun and very evenly matched matchup so far, and I'm curious to see how that plays out uh, in in a playoff environment where all of those emotions are amplified uh, tenfold. Will we see Rodrigo Schlegel come in and start in place of Pedro Galese in the first round? <laughs> I think last year they really really hope not. <laughs> Pedro Galese is pretty good. I think they probably want him out there. And for those who are listening who may not know the context, Pedro Galese, the Orlando keeper, in PKs picked up a second yellow. It is no longer permissible for a second yellow for coming off the line to result in a red. It was then, under the old laws of the game, the old interpretation. And so Rodrigo Schlegel had to come in from his center back spot. He made the game-winning save, and Orlando advanced past NYCFC. Um, all kidding aside, obviously, about his heroics, that was Orlando's first ever playoff appearance. It was full of full of drama as part of that crazy rivalry you mentioned. What do you think the club learned from its first taste of playoff action that it will apply when it comes to Nashville? I think there's a maturity that they've gained that they didn't necessarily have last year. Um, and it's not just the young guys. I mean, you've got your Daryl DKs and Benji Michels and, and you know really young players that are playing key roles for this team. But if you look at the game after New York City, which was when they lost to New England, the two guys that they rely on to keep their heads and lead the team are Nani and Mauricio Pereira. And both of them had moments where their emotions got the best of them. Mauricio gets sent off uh, for a, a, a pretty nasty challenge um, when they were down 2-1 at the hour mark. And then Nani missed what would have been a game-tying penalty mm-hmm. uh, it, uh, later on. So uh, it, it definitely got to the point where the emotion of the moment, I think the previous week's ridiculousness kind of carried into that game. Mm-hmm. Uh, plus, New England was just better than their record. They had didn't have Carlos Hill last year for most of the season. They proved that this year. But I think we've seen a maturity from them. You go back to the Montreal game, 
they could have easily, you know, imploded after what happened in the Nashville game on Halloween. Instead, they went up there. They knew Montreal had to win. They weathered the storm. They played a very disciplined game. They got a great, great goal at a perfect time. There's, you know, some luck involved in that, but they put themselves in a position to do that. And then they saw out the game very professionally where Montreal got a little antsy and urgent and it ended up with them getting a red card instead and Daryl DK killed it off. So it, I'm not sure last year's team, as good as it was, and it was really, really good team, I'm not sure last year's team would have seen out the Montreal game the way that this year's team did with so much riding on it. So they basically already played a playoff game this year because that was a win-or-go-home game mm-hmm. for those two teams. Uh, and and they, they got through that in a tough test on the road, uh, and now they got to go to a place where the team they're playing hasn't even lost a single game. Uh, but I think uh, from the mental side of things, this is a team that is mostly the same guys from last year, uh, and they, I think, have a, a much better understanding of how to handle those moments. Now, it's easy to say that. We'll see what happens when, you know, things get real on Tuesday. But if there's a difference this year, I think that's it. That continuity on the roster and in the in the coaching staff led to a really strong start for this team. Unbeaten in their first six, six wins in their first ten. And then we saw a bit of a drop-off before a strong last few matches. The club, uh, again, six wins in their first ten, but then just seven wins in their final 24 matches. What was the biggest factor in your mind in that decline? And then after that strong last few matches, how confident are you that that adversity is behind the Lions? It's interesting. I, I, I think their first their first run was not necessarily them playing a lot better than they had in the second half of the season, but they got Nani was the league MVP through 10 games. Yeah. Uh, and Pedro Galese was brilliant. And between those two things, I think they, they allowed two goals in their first six games. Uh, he made some ridiculous saves and Nani had a stretch where in early August, he was on nine goals and seven assists. Uh, but even before then, I, I think as at the end of June, he would have been the league MVP. Uh, and then, you know, Carlos Hill started popping off and, and that became that. Though, frankly, I, I think you guys have a case with Hani Mukhtar. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, Nani kind of cooling off a little bit. They just lacked that that second force uh, and you know, Mauricio Pereira was in and out with some minor injuries all season. He's 32 just has not been the same guy that he was last year when he was such a dynamic playmaker, especially in the bubble where, where he might've been the single best player in the bubble, uh, you know, going all the way to the MLS is back final. And they just have not, they've also lost a lot of games to injuries. Uh, I believe mm-hmm. only Columbus lost more games from their starting 11 than Orlando did this year. And we saw what happened to them. So uh, they've really had to weather the storm with a lot of guys being out. They've had very little consistency in midfield. Sebas Mendes missed two months uh, and has been away with with uh, yeah, the national team as well. He's a key player. Galese missed a month uh, with an injury as well as his national team. Uh, you know, Daryl DK was not with the team. He, he was in, right. in England, came back for a few games and went to the national team. He got hurt. He wasn't back until the end of August. I think what's lifted them is getting Daryl DK back on track because they finally have someone who is producing at a DP level. You guys have seen the difference between 2020 Nashville, which was just a solid, solid team, and 2021 Nashville, which Mm -hmm. is that same solid team with an elite difference maker leading the way, right? When you have that DP that's performing at that level, 
that's the difference in MLS because you only get three spots to pay somebody whatever you want. And that guy has got to do it. For Orlando, that's a guy making 110 grand right now in, in Daryl DK. Uh, seven goals in his last nine games. He has taken the penalty taker spot at 21 years old. There is no flap. Of, he's, he's unflappable. He is poised. He is confident. I think his ability to just wreck defenses uh, and, and the attention you have to pay to him has changed a lot of things and to get his legs back under him. He's played 50 matches this year between club and country. So uh, the kids, the kid needed that break. And I think he's, if there's anything, that's the difference. Now, if Orlando is going to make a bigger run than that, I think they need Nani and Pereira to get back to what they can be because at their best, they are two of the most skilled players in MLS. Uh, They just are. Um, There may be no more intimidating one V one player than Nani when he is at his absolute best. But when when we see that, it, it's now or never, basically. <laughs> so uh, I think that's the difference. Uh, if you wanted to look at what what was different from that first stretch where they were so so good and looked like a shield contender uh, to to what they've been for the past few months. Uh, but I think overall, their their record tends to reflect about how well they've played. And and I think if their difference makers come alive, they've got a chance to be really really dangerous. Now, is there a silver lining in some of those injuries that some of these guys are maybe a little bit fresher than they have been in the past? Obviously, Nani has a little bit of a reputation for kind of fading when October hits. And um, since he missed time earlier in the season and some of these guys, um, Sebas Mendez, you also mentioned some of these guys, Pereira, are they going to be a little bit fresher than they might have otherwise been? Is that going to be a team that's maybe hitting form now uh, in a way that others aren't? Yeah, you'd hope so. I think the mm-hmm. break actually helped them. We talked to Nani about this yesterday and he said, typically you wouldn't want that long of a break between games but mm-hmm. in this team's case it, it seems to have come at a good time where they had just been playing games that were you know the the emotional swing of the nashville game to the decision day game and it was it, it gave them a chance to you know other than the two international guys uh Gullis and mendez it gave them a chance to to really lick their wounds and they they had a few days off after the game they were able to recuperate. They've kind of ramped things up slowly and focused on some details this week. Uh, and Nani didn't play on decision day. So he's got a, He's going to come in having, uh, you know, three and a half weeks off. Uh, so, so again, he, he really should be fresh. And then the other guy I'd notice is Alexandra Pato, who just had a brutal time uh, coming back from uh, what was originally just a minor knee procedure that was supposed to hold him out for about six weeks. Uh, but he had a series of, of setbacks when he would come back to training and then uh, just could not get back on the field. And then finally did last month. And you guys saw firsthand mm-hmm. that it only takes one moment from him. Uh, one of the most purely talented players of his generation uh, to, to make something happen. So they, they are coming into this at a good time in terms of injuries. There are no, no key players uh, that are unavailable at this point. Uh, Joao Moutinho is, is a, a little bit questionable. He's missed some time, but uh, they've gotten a great fill-in job from uh, Emmanuel Moss, who's been terrific. Uh, so overall, uh, they, they really are, are in good shape, uh, freshness-wise. But uh, again, in the playoffs, uh, it, it's, there's, uh, there's such a mental side to it. That'll be the key, I think. Gerald DK, you've mentioned the poise beyond his years. Five goals in five matches against NSC, including a, a brace uh, and, of course, the, the key penalty uh, in Nashville that helped bring Orlando back the last time these teams met at Nissan Stadium. In your opinion, is this postseason the last time we'll see Gerald DK in an MLS kit? 
I don't know. I really don't know. I wish I had more for you, Wes. <laughs> I, I can't tell you. Uh, what I can tell you is it has been uh, an absolute pleasure covering him. Uh, I did uh, I did kind of a, an interview with his family right after he was drafted. Um, and because he's uh, he comes from a soccer family. His, his older brother played in the league uh, and played for Nigeria. His older sister played in the World Cup for Nigeria. Um, but uh, Daryl is such an interesting guy because he was born in Edmond, Oklahoma, and he is a freak athlete, an unnatural athlete. 99 times out of a hundred, that kid is playing American football. Yeah. He's an outside linebacker, baby. He's right. Can you imagine how good of like a strong safety Daryl DK would be, or just like a sideline to sideline linebacker. I mean, he'd be a freak. Uh, He's Mm. six, two, two twenty. Uh, blazing fast when he gets up to speed. Um, but his parents did not let him play football. They would only let him play soccer. This is a soccer family. They were born in Nigeria, came over to the United States, made themselves uh, and said, you know, you're not going to play football. You're going to play soccer. And so he did. And thank goodness for it, because uh, both both uh, Orlando and the U.S. have benefited tremendously from it. Uh, and, and you could just see the first time I ever saw him in training, it was a few months before the pandemic shut down. So we were, we were able to get out there and it was just, just his different size than, than everybody else. And I think he's also grown tremendously uh, in his terms of his maturity and his ability uh, since he was drafted, not even two years ago, even if it feels like 10. Um, I do think that his future is extremely bright. Uh, <laughs> I, I had badly wished that Greg Bar- Berhalter had taken him on this last trip because I think the Jamaica game was perfect for him mm-hmm. to come in in those last 20 minutes and, and try to put some pressure on them and get a big guy in the box to target. Uh, Berhalter doesn't seem to want to play with a target forward uh, in that traditional sense, and that is what Daryl is at this point. So I, I, I wonder if maybe that is the reason. But I, I think in the long term, he's 21 years old, and he scored 22 goals this season overall. Um, he is, uh, he's got an extremely bright future, whether it's here or or overseas. I think eventually, of course, uh, you would expect him to play overseas. Uh, I know I'm enjoying every game we get to have, uh, Daryl in an Orlando Jersey. That's for sure. As you should. And I was just going to say too, one of the, the beauties of, of being in a radio booth for these matches is that, you know, we're sitting and trying to objectively analyze these matchups and these players and road remote calls are tough. You do you do what you can. When you see those guys in person, though, when you see Daryl DK in person, you start to really understand and embrace the athleticism he brings to the table. And uh, you know, because I've been on, on the color analyst side this year, largely following the ball and you know what led up to the play. I was tempted just to sit there and watch DK versus Walker Zimmerman all <laughs> night long, though. That matchup is just two heavyweights going at it at, at the top of their field here in Major League Soccer. I wonder, is that the matchup that you would point to to define who achieves success in this playoff match, or do you go somewhere else on the field? It's definitely a big one. Uh, we asked Daryl about it, and and he loves it. He loves going up against Zimmerman. Uh, I, I think it was long overdue for Walker to get the shot that he has with the national team. I'm not sure why it took this long for him to get into the starting lineup because his quality has been obvious for half a decade now at least mm-hmm. and he goes way back with oscar pareja remember they mm-hmm. were together yeah, in dallas. dallas for yeah. a long time and they have a, a a lot of respect for each other this coaching staff which was all there in dallas they they love walker zimmerman they really respect him and what he can do um and you're right it's just a it's just a heavyweight slugfest isn't it it's uh it's it's just two big uh you know brawlers going at it for 90 minutes and i, I think it's a huge matchup in this game 
If you're looking for a big matchup, though, I would also look at Sebas Mendes versus Hani Mukhtar. I think containing Hani Mukhtar is going to take more than one guy. Um, but Mendes is is really one of the more underrated central midfielders in the league. I think he's really the, the team has been so much better when he's been in at the six. Their longest kind of losing stretches have coincided with when he was out. He came back for that Nashville game at the end of September, where Orlando came in on a four-game losing streak, and they lost that game. They're you know they're looking at five in a row. They're you know falling down the table, um, and he was a big lift there. And I, I think he he's. Uh, He's a, a key, a key, key player in limiting Hani Mukhtar. Very few teams have been able to limit Hani Mukhtar. I understand it's a, it's, it's a sentence that you can put in words, but actually executing that is a little bit different. Uh, but yes, he is. Uh, he, he's going to be the the main guy responsible for that. I would imagine, uh, depending on how Gary Smith chooses to set things up. But I, I, that that's another one that I would really look at. His brother went to Notre Dame. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and and then played uh, you know professionally in the U.S. for a long time. And and uh, Daryl would, as a six-year-old, call his brother after every game. Uh, and his brother got to the point where he was like, "All right, enough of this." I'm, you know, he's 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 a lot <laughs> older than than Daryl, but Daryl really did follow in his footsteps. Um, but now seems to be set to surpass him with with what he's uh, he's accomplishing is is really special. And he said, he did say too, he went to UVA shout out to your, your former colleague, John Freeman um, about uh, because he wanted to do something different than his brother. He wanted to carve his own path. Uh, and so he, he has certainly done that. And uh, again, it's going to be exciting wherever he ends up uh, going forward to, to watch him progress. With John gone, I thought we were done with the UVA soccer shout out. <laughs> <laughs> the new England game always gets that for us because it's oh, him yeah. against Henry Kessler. So it's like UVA all the time. Uh, at least Walker Zimmerman didn't go there. Well, and, and they got the better of of Alistair Johnson and Wake Forest back in the uh, the College Cup uh, back a couple of years ago. They did. Um, hey, Evan, thank you so much for the time, and uh, feel free to to come by in the press box and say hello. We'll be right down the hall. Uh, best of luck traveling up, and best of luck to Orlando City. Yeah, breaking out the long johns and the scarf. It's going to be very, very cold for us Floridians. I've, I've gone native. I'm not my Syracuse best anymore. My blood is thin, uh, but we're really looking forward to it. Thanks for having me on, guys. Hey, thanks. So, Tim, the uh, analysis on the, the foul, which we will very clearly <laughs> say was a foul, notwithstanding, uh, like what Evan was able to bring. As with John, he has a sense of history, but with Orlando City, and that history right. is short, dating back just a few years, but he's been there for most of it. He's been through the struggles, and you know it has to be special for him to see a club that has gained the maturity he talked about and harnessed the, the ability and, and really is in a pretty strong position uh, in year two under Oscar Pereja. Yeah, it was so interesting what he said about the kind of the specific things that have been maybe struggles under Oscar, which are uh, kind of almost thematically continuous from Orlando City, which is which is not Oscar Brejas. It's not his team over the course of his history, but the ways in which his teams have had struggles. And, and frankly, this year, it seems like they're set to overcome some of the specific struggles that they've had both under him and historically with such like a, a broad perspective that I don't even know if he was imparting upon us, but it was so interesting for me to hear and, and kind of interesting to weave that thread, like you mentioned with John's interview about how this is not just kind of a finite item it's it's weaving the thread throughout the course of history 
Thanks to Evan for joining us, and thanks also to John. Let's get to our analysis now. You may be listening to this driving to the match or, or you know, mowing the lawn, getting ready for the match after the weekend is up. And so we want to give you our keys to victory for Nashville SC against Orlando. I won't make an actual pick in the game since I'm on the broadcast team, uh, but, but let's get into the analysis of what the boys in gold need to do to get the victory. And Tim, I'll start with you. What's your key for the boys in gold? It is extraordinarily simple, and it's one that we have unfortunately had to bring up for too many games this year, <laughs> and that's set pieces. When you see what Orlando City has been able to do, both uh, the two games uh, series in Nashville plus the the home game for the uh, Lions in Orlando, set pieces have been such a crucial piece of that, whether that's a penalty kick or whether that's uh, unfortunate, unfortunately seeing uh, a headed goal in stoppage time kind of level a match that Nashville thought it had won. This is a situation that has been kind of a bugaboo for Nashville over the course of this year, not just against Orlando and not just when Walker Zimmerman has been out of the lineup. Walker's going to be there this weekend. That's not a guarantee that you're going to prevent the opponent from scoring set piece goals, but that's what Nashville needs to do in order to ensure victory against Orlando city. And in a match that promises to be fairly physical, you have to also include not not giving up those cheap fouls in the final mm-hmm. third, right? I mean, if, if you're going to commit a foul there, make it because you had to drag down DK just outside the 18 or he was going to lumber past you and score. You had to take down Nani on the wing. But but I would imagine defensive positioning is going to help head off some of those issues of the past, just not allowing those set pieces in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I think that goes kind of hand in hand with what Nashville has struggled with this year. It's not just once opponents get a very enticing set piece opportunity, they have a good chance to score. It's we are giving teams a very enticing set piece opportunity in the first place. And that's something that um, Gary Smith has mentioned to us repeatedly, whether that's in press conferences or when you and I talked to him uh, for our podcast just a few weeks ago, that's something that he really wants his team to improve. And I think that that's something that they have focused on. We'll see if it, if it comes off, you know, what, what the coach focuses on is not a guarantee for what the team actually does improve on the field. But I think over the course of history, you've seen that this team is pretty good at kind of meeting its, its greater goals and its, its kind of uh, specific goals along the path to those greater goals as well. So my first of three keys to victory really dovetails off of that, which is uh, to make sure that you're isolating those strikers from Orlando's midfield and employing a fierce mid-block press so that you're, you're really trying to, to just swarm and keep Orlando from getting it into the final third. You know, a lot of clubs, you know, Nashville will be content to let them have the ball on the fringe of the final third in bad positions. But when you're crossing in to DK, when Nani's the one giving those crosses, when Orlando, they love to camp out in that final third and and Mm -hmm. overlap and overload and, and, and get numbers. You just can't let them get there. And I think, you know, Nashville's going to concede a goal in this game. It's going to happen. Neither team. No, nope, nope. first, first clean sheet in series history. You That's what so. I'm, I'm going to go back and predict that uh, when we get to, when we get to the VRN. All yeah. right. Yeah. We will have, uh, you'll have your prediction at the end. Uh, I, I don't see it. I think you would rather though concede by Orlando playing one over the top when you're executing a mid block mm-hmm. press than, than by allowing Orlando to pin you back and just dominate and take over. Yeah, and I think what uh, Evan said was that, you know, you get Juan up that that right side. You get, whether it's Joao Moutinho or whoever else is, is healthy on the left side, they have such good overlapping service. If you do force them to go over the top rather than let those guys get around the edges and bring it in, I do think that you have a very good point there that that's what you want to prevent them from doing. I think that's number one for sure. Uh, and if you're doing that and you're isolating DK from his midfielders, you're, you're helping, you know, you're giving help to, to your, you know, flank defenders and not letting the wings get forward. 
Um, then you're preventing Orlando's buildup, and then you can start thinking about your own. And Nashville has trailed in possession all three of these matches. Part of that's going to be game state, of course. But mm-hmm. um, I think number two is to attack down the right flank. Juan's going to get really up high down Orlando's right. I think that provides an opportunity to get in behind, but more likely Lovitz is going to have to sit back on the left just a little bit and try to be in that defensive posture. And you're going to need Alistair Johnson on the right uh, to to get forward. And, and that's what Nashville did. Most recent home match against Orlando, mm-hmm. uh, more than 45% of their attack came on the right third of the pitch because that's where the opportunity was. So that what that means, if Nashville goes with a 3-4-3, and we'll go get to our, our suggested lineups in a minute, Randall Ayal probably shades a little bit to that right side where he's tracking back. He's helping with that mid-block press. He's taking the ball away. He's springing forward and kind of carving his way down the right. Johnston can overlap within there. Alistair Johnston, an informed player, as we've seen with Canada against Mexico. We hadn't discussed that. Zero sleeves. Zero sleeves on this man. Of course. You, you had to make the statement if you're Alistair, right? Absolutely, absolutely. 16 degrees, of course. Uh, So number two is attack down the right flank, and number three is to win 50-50 balls in the attack. Oh, and defensively, of course. If it's DK versus Zimmerman, (laughs) Walker's got to get the better of that matchup. But the other way around, if you're against an Orlando team trying to impose its will on the match, I'm okay with going a little bit of Red Bulls here. Not a high press, but a mid-block press, and then just trying to launch the ball into attacking positions head the ball down and trust Sapong to be your target man there and Mukhtar uh, to link together. Um, I think if you can, you know, throw those balls in, win the 50 fifties and pounce on those second balls, switching field a good bit to do that, to keep Orlando yeah. off guard when they have the wings high. I think there you can find some, some counterattacking uh, options that will allow Nashville to score. And I think as if they can do that, they can score multiple goals on this Orlando team for the second time this year. Yeah. At Greg Burhalter, the second balls are very important. Let's go back in a time machine a couple of days ago and, and learn that one against Jamaica. But yeah, I'm, that's kind of the the throwback uh, insult on Gary Smith yeah. is that he was a coach who who concentrated so much on winning the second balls, and that's not necessarily the beautiful game uh, in air quotes there, I guess, but. Against this Orlando team, it's going to be so important to do what Nashville should be very good at, and that is winning those second balls. And if they can retain possession that way, rather than necessarily having to build up through, um, you know, beautiful tiki-taka passing sequences, this is a team that has the ability to retain the possession from those second balls and turn that into something. It's not just about okay, now we have the ball and uh, cool mission accomplished it's let's it's let's go let's let's go um you know bang it up to Sapong he lays it off to somebody we get that second ball and then that through ball from there is where Nashville has been so killer this year that that has really historically not been the hallmark of Nashville SC teams but is what has made this team much more special than any of the previous teams yeah they call it the beautiful game I don't know that this will be a beautiful game uh, but if, <laughs> if you could be a little more pragmatic rivalry games shouldn't be come on no, no way. And this is that. This is absolutely that. It is a rivalry game. And I think, you know, Gary Smith and his team will throw out style and finesse in favor of whatever result they can get uh, at home against Orlando. Logan Elliott asks us what a preferred starting lineup would be against Orlando. That's the mailbag question that we will focus on tonight. And really a couple options, Tim. You know, Nashville can go with the three-man back line. Or they can go attacking and recognize that there are going to be goals in this and they need to have that extra attacker on the pitch in a, in a four-man. What do you think they do? 
Yeah, I what I think they're going to do and what I'm about to say are very different things. <laughs> yeah, I think Gary Smith is I think Gary Smith is going to go with that that, you know, kind of 3-4-3-3-5-2 hybrid that he's been going with. Um he is going to completely ignore me as he has done for the second half of this season as Smart I man. sit here and, and bang my head against the wall saying the 4-2-3-1, <laughs> but that's that's what I really like. Um is that 4-2-3-1 and it's part of that is just because it makes the personnel choices that much more obvious. Mm-hmm. You have Dan Lovitz, Dave Romney, Walker Zimmerman, and Alistair Johnston. Those are four really good defenders. You don't need to mess around with it. It will shock you to learn that the central midfield is even better. You have Anibal Godoy and Dax McCarty. Where it starts to get a little bit confusing is how you implement a three-man kind of attacking midfield line because you have Randall Layall, you have Hani Mukhtar. Do you have another winger that can provide the same sort of offensive punch as those guys? Do you put somebody in the number 10 spot who's a little bit more defensive? For my money, you put Alex Mill on the right wing. As we've seen over the course of this, of you know, the past two years almost since he joined Nashville from New York Red Bulls, he's going to be a bit more of a defensive player, but that's, you know, this is Gary Smith we're talking about. A defensive player is not something he's ever going to frown upon. And then, of course, you do have C.J. Spong up top. I do think that you're going to see the 3-4-3, 3-5-2 hybrid. But I love that 4-2-3-1 just because of the flexibility it gives you. Even if Nashville's personnel isn't quite a perfect fit for it, you do still have Leal, Mukhtar, and Sapong in your front two lines. And that's – however you get those guys in your front two lines is great. It's just my personal preference of liking that back four. That's it. My my counter argument would be, of course, number one, the same one that you're going to probably point to, which is that you know it gave up three goals early to Cincinnati in the four two three one, and and this is an Orlando team you know can score goals against you. So, but can teams that actually are able to score goals score against the four two three one? We don't have any proof of that. We know that teams that cannot typically score goals are able to do it. Your question defies logic, but so does MLS sometimes. So, uh, yeah, it's true. Uh, any any thought to putting Loba in instead of Muil and just being uber attacking? The guy can play wing and almost kind of make him a, a hybrid wing second striker type. Yeah, you know, I, if, I, if Rios I, is healthy to come in off the bench as that second no, striker, I would I would absolutely like that. My my bigger thought is it's something that again uh, shout out to Greg Berhalter second time this ep, people rip on him for putting Tim Weah off the bench. Yeah. Uh, after Paul Ariola gets the start, it's I like the kind of the explosiveness of Loba off the bench after Alex Muil has kind of run the opponent ragged. Certainly, if you want to go all offense from the beginning, yeah, yeah, absolutely, I'm putting Ake Loba on the on that kind of middle three line, but bringing him off the bench kind of makes the most of what he can provide against a tired back line. And of course the fact that he hadn't been, and you know, it's been a couple of weeks since we've seen the team play, but he hadn't been 90 minute fit mm-hmm. uh, allows you to say, okay, let's put him on for like 40 and kind of tear these guys apart a little bit. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's playing with more confidence and I very much prefer him in a substitute role, which mm-hmm. is where he'll probably be. I'll, I'll just give the boilerplate vanilla lineup that I would expect uh, personally, my personal opinion, and Same. probably the, the one you're just going to, yeah. Uh, so Willis, Romney, Zimmerman, Mayer. Lovitz on the left wing, Johnson on the right, Godoy, McCarty, the backbone, Leal, and that hybrid number eight, uh, and then Mukhtar and Sapong up top. That's that's likely what we're going to see. It's what we've seen most of the mm-hmm. year, uh, and I think it is probably the, the first choice lineup. I do think this is a match that, that you know, there's a place for Alex Mleal here as somebody who can rough you up in midfield and still have enough of an eye going forward and connect. Um, and I would expect to see him in crucial moments, 60 minutes and on, depending on, on game state. 
Uh, yeah, and I, I the one thing I would say is that his his style of play, which is mostly defensive, and and there is some offense in there, and he's always, as you know, pushed back very hard against the fact that he is not an offensive oh, yeah. player, but pragmatically, he really isn't. But you want the defensive player first because you can go on there and say, okay, offensive player, you've got these tired guys. Let's go do what you're supposed to do instead of saying, okay, go try, go try against these guys for <laughs> 60 minutes. And then the, we'll bring on Alex Mwil to score a goal. It's like, again, no, off- no offense to him, but that's uh, not necessarily the, the best way to distribute kind of temporally the skill sets there. Unless there's a late PK against DC United, and then you can put him in to score the to score the goal. Think if Ake Loba had scored that one. How many mm. times have we discussed this now? Yes, it's too many, too many. <laughs> uh, let's go throughout the East now and, and give our picks, and we'll end with that Nashville and Orlando match. Uh, and we'll start with the 4-5 matchup, NYCFC hosting Atlanta United at Yankee Stadium, the winner to have the joy of visiting uh, Supporter Shield winning record setting New England. NYC Atlanta, I'll, I'll say NYC wins this one. I like 3-1 here. I think this is an NYC team that is rounding into form after having a drop-off there toward the end of the season, looking a little better now. Uh, they were a man down against Philadelphia and still fought back and, and drew. Uh, and the stat that really drives this for me, Tim, is that Atlanta has one win over a playoff team all season. Uh, they've beaten up on Miami, Cincinnati, Toronto, Montreal, I could just list the teams that didn't make the playoffs. That's who they've beaten up on. Uh, if you go by underlying metrics, NYCFC, meanwhile, one of the highest performing teams in mm. the league. So there are a couple questions there. Number one, they have the ability. Can they finally find that ability to come through and, and justify those metrics and put it together in the playoffs? Or is this a team that is just perpetually underachieving and it's going to end with a disappointment? Yeah, that's, that's always the big question. If it were Chicago Fire who... Uh, whether the underlying metrics are okay or very good, the team is always bad. Yeah. Uh, NYCFC doesn't have that kind of consistency season to season that they're going to underachieve. And that might mean that they don't underachieve from one point in the season to another. Um, my thought is, is you kind of undermined it. So now I'm <laughs> second guessing myself, but I do have Atlanta winning and that's because of the form of these two teams. Atlanta has been playing a lot better. They had to close strong to even make the playoffs, whereas NYC, uh, over the course of kind of the second half of the regular season, really faded in results more than in the underlying metrics. But still, I say I say uh, Atlanta 3-1 over New York City. The Yankee Stadium field is, is something that's difficult for people to deal with. But when you have Joseph Martinez, I, I really like what you're going to be able to do. Just Martinez versus Tati Castellanos will be uh, will be yeah. juicy. And to undermine my undermining <laughs> your point, Atlanta's in good form. And even though it's against struggling teams, sometimes it's the form that matters more than, than the competition you did it against, especially in the playoffs when it's all about confidence mm-hmm. and finding that final touch. Philadelphia hosts New York Red Bulls in the 2-7 match. The winner will host either Nashville SC or Orlando uh, if it's Philly. Uh, New York Red Bulls would, of course, travel if they were to get the win. Tim, who you got? Yeah, I I, uh, I think it goes to Philly. I do think this is going to be a game where both teams score. New York Red Bulls really like to play against a team like Philly that wants to possess a little bit. The, the flip side of that is Philly also likes to press a team and, and have its joy in turning them over in their own end. And for that reason, both of these teams are going to be able to find the back of the scoreboard. I do think uh, Red Bulls have been hot. Similar to Atlanta, they had to close really hard to even make the playoffs. But I, I Philly's just a better team. Choppy, chippy. Somebody earns a red card for kicking somebody too hard, studs up, and the team that ends up a man up wins it. 
and I say it's Philly. I think it's 1-0. Um, I, I could see goals in this, but that's the problem about predicting, well, any MLS match. But a Philly-New York match where both teams have the you know that, that diamond type of shape and want to just mm-hmm. you know, absolutely you just, you know, barnstorm you, it, it, it relies on on flukes, on mistakes, rather than on... On a know, goose in the face. Grace. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Fabio, once again, it all, all roads lead back to... We're bringing Fabio. it back, baby. <laughs> That's right, fake butter for the win. So I'll say 1-0 Philadelphia. I think everybody comes away with bru- bruised shins, and uh, I'm actually going to say a PK wins. Casper Shabilko with his third PK of the season sends Philadelphia through to the conference semifinals, where they were host either Nashville SC... Or Orlando, I will not make a pick some of the broadcasts. I will just say, I think this one goes to extra time. That's not the boldest prediction ever. These teams have drawn three times this year. I think they will draw a fourth, and whoever wins is going to do it before PKs in extra time. Yeah, um, you you can see my prediction there, which implies but doesn't explicitly say that it does not go to extra time. I think Nashville wins by a two-goal margin, and I do think that they do it uh, through the course of the 90 to 96 minutes in uh, stoppage time as well. I, I think what we have seen from Nashville and Orlando this season is that Nashville has been the better team for of the 270 minutes, probably 200 of them, but hasn't been rewarded. Now, of course, you can see, okay, Orlando's like, all right, it's time for revenge. We're going to play better this time. Or more likely, you see Nashville continue to be the, the slightly better team that it has been for over two-thirds of this time and, and finally make it count. And I do think that's what we'll see. Um, I do not have them in the rundown, so I'm going to make them up off the top of my head. I think one, Charles Nanakwabana Sapong uh, scores the first goal. And then Ake Loba is the uh, stoppage time stoppage time uh, guarantee goal. Uh, gives gives Nashville the insurance goal to send them through to play against the Philadelphia Union. Of those two, if that were to happen, the Loba coup de grace would be by far the more memorable. You would it, would, it would be very funny. I would it like would it be, a lot. It would be quite a moment uh, for this team. I, I do think, you know, as we look at Orlando's recent history, when they have come out exceedingly emotionally in a match, it is usually not favored them. And you heard yeah. Evan reference that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they, they have the, just the crazy fiery match against New York city. They come out and, and earn a red card in the playoffs, which you really shouldn't yeah. do against new England. I would not recommend it. it. I would it, not. Is you that similar to recommendation of leading yeah. rather than trailing? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. What I would say is one team that uh, does very well is the team that scores more than the opponent. Aren't you guys? So you should you do that. You should do that if you would like to win soccer games. And for more great analysis, go to clubcountryusa.com. <laughs> uh, John Mueller uh, follows up with, with his mailbag question. Outside of the NSC game, which playoff game are you most excited to watch? They should all be decent or better matchups, but which one just jumps off the page for you, Tim? Yeah, for me, it's it's something that's going to make like the soccer purists really angry. It's just I love the style of play of two teams that want to get up the field and win the ball high up in the opponent's defensive area and and try and turn that into immediate goals. And for that reason, it is the Philadelphia versus Red Bulls game because I, I like that style of play. I know people, it's funny because I've, I've been a Barca fan. Barcelona was the first team that I ever really cheered for, but just, just that kind of that concept of it's a almost a real American thing. I was going like, to say, let's, yeah. let's go, let's go do, let's go do the soccer in this way. It is something there's a like a pure identity to these teams that really makes me happy. And uh, you know, I do love that Philadelphia versus Red Bulls matchup. 
if you like teams blitzing on third down over and over and over again, that's that's what this is. You know, it, it does feel American, right? It's it's yeah. This it's, is Todd the, Grantham, the football game. There it is, third and Grantham as he sits on his couch and will have a chance to watch this instead of coaching Florida. <laughs> um, I will go NYC Atlanta. I I think it's it's a, a battle of of just you know so much skill on the pitch. Yankee Stadium has a very distorting factor Mm -hmm. it's just it's a tough place to play especially if you're not used to it um uh, nashville's been fortunate not to have to play there yet but i compared to louisville slugger field a little bit you know for for usl diehards that that, or first tennessee park at times but tight dimensions a team that knows how to play there it's going to get the set pieces going to put in the crosses unfortunately won't be able to use the the services of anton Tennerholm to do that who's just perfect for that team got hurt against nashville I, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. So not only because by process of elimination, you took the other game, but actually what I would have chosen is NYC and Atlanta. I also think it's going to be really tight. I said 3-1 NYC, but your 3-1 Atlanta pick, I mean, like anything else, like John Strong. I had Atlanta on both sides of the score in the you rundown. For just, just, for, for just Wes made a face at me. I saw. I thought I was, you were going to have oh, some sort of meta point about Atlanta beating itself as they have so often in the past two years. <laughs> Instead, it was just a typo because we're recording this way too late at night, which I can also respect. <laughs> Tim, any other thoughts as, you know, before people turn this off, get out of their cars where they've been sitting in the parking lot waiting for 20 minutes to walk into the tailgate to finish our show? Um, any any final thoughts? Yeah, just in case this is the last episode of the season that doesn't have another game coming up, I just want to say thank you to everybody for listening. Um, previewing games is, I think, the more fun thing that we have been able to do with these episodes. I've been so happy to do it. Very happy to do it with this one as well. And uh, hopefully this isn't the last one. But just in case, just in case, thank you to everyone who's rated, reviewed, and subscribed especially. But if you've just listened, that was also great. Yeah, seriously. And and we would love, if, if this is not the last one of the season, we would love for you guys to, to share this. No, I'm, right. I'm putting it out there. It's not. It's not. There's All one right. more. There's there one more. I, I don't know what my desk is made of. It's cherry, mahogany. I'm going to knock on it just in case. And I'll, I'll echo your your word of thanks, Tim. It has been such a joy to to produce these episodes, but but also, of course, to interact with you guys over the course of the season. I, I do hope there are plenty more uh, matches this season to go, but either way, there'll be plenty more episodes where we can we can bounce things off of you and have you bounce them off of us. So thank you very much. Thanks to Moon Taxi for the, the awesome local music. Uh, as Tim mentioned, rate this show. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe. It'll go right to your inbox. Tell all your friends about us who like soccer, and maybe a few who don't, just in case. Um, and uh, if, they, if they like engaging personalities such as ourselves, they can also enjoy the podcast, even if they despise soccer. Also, sarcasm. If you like sarcasm, that, that's uh, not, no, no, no. We have great engaging. Per- Do you not think we have engaging personalities, Wes? I think one of us does, and you can decide which. Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, it's you. All right. Well, you guys have a good night. We're going to close this one out now. Playoffs Tuesday evening, Nissan Stadium. Tune in, ESPN ninety four nine. Give it a listen. And we will uh, talk to you soon and hopefully be previewing another playoff match next time we talk. Mm-hmm.